Do you want to go into stasis for the rest of the trip and forfeit 18 months' wages? Do you want to listen to Dwarf Cast by Ganymede and Titan? Choose. Awoga, this is a Dwarf Cast. Hello, and welcome to the Dwarfcast Book Club, the series in which we reread, discuss, and dissect the four Red Dwarf novels part by part. And today is the turn of Backwards Part 4 Nipple Sized Pastry Cutters, Gonad Electrocution Kits, and Easy Listening Music. Or, as all the cool kids are calling it, NSPC Geck and Elm. NSPC Geck and Elm! Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, good old Geck and Elm. <laughs> I'm Ian Symes, and joining me today are two people that have been given amusing comedy names by their manufacturers Jonathan Craps. Hello. And Fanny Weavenson. <laughs> Kill all humans. <laughs> and inexplicably kept them throughout our entire lives. <laughs> yeah. uh, we've also found floating in deep space a selection of comments that we've hauled in. They've been left by the people over at www.ganymede.tv. As always, we recommend you re-familiarise yourself with the book before listening. And if you've forgotten what happened last time, for once, it's actually relevant. So listen up. <laughs> The crew acclimatise to the backwards life and figure out that Starbuck's landing jet must have been unclipped off in the botched landing and therefore they didn't need to go and find them after all. They just have to wait for Starbuck's various bits to unrust and attach themselves. Ten years later, a 15-year-old cat has horrific reverse sex with a young girl, injuring her brutally with his barbed penis. With Starbuck now ready to reverse land again, it judders its way airborne, the flight becoming increasingly perilous until they're unhit by a heat-seeking missile and start ascending smoothly. They finally head towards their own universe, ready to rendezvous with Red Dwarf and Holly. Short and sweet. And everything was fine after that. <laughs> they successfully went back on board Red Dwarf, had a nice chat with Holly, it was all hilarious, and then they all went out. Because Rob Grant is a benevolent god who loves his characters and wants to keep them safe. <laughs> we are lying. <laughs> it's gone terribly. So we start off back on Starbug. Which is a little bit gunman, all of a sudden. Yeah. But it actually, the chapter starts off with two of my favourite funny bits from this whole novel, and you know some classic moments, the kind of ones that could fit into any novel, such as Crichton keeping himself occupied by reading a book with naught point eight something words a day, <laughs> so that he doesn't run out. Yeah, and he must have been reading this like for. Over the last 10 years on the backwards world, right? He spent over 47 years plowing through it. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that means he started at the end and he's had to like reconfigure once he was in for- the forward universe. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh, oh actually, well, maybe not. Maybe they... No, because they would have had to go into stasis, wouldn't they? So maybe they've been in stasis for a few decades. Why? Because the, the, the process of going through the Omnizone is, um, oh, yeah. is quite long-winded. So they probably were in stasis, which makes me think, like, why didn't they program the stasis computer just to let them age up 10 years? Why didn't Rob take that out now that I think about it? Mm. Well, yeah, the fact that they're young uh, sort of is relevant sometimes, but mostly not. Mostly gets in the way, yeah. Throughout this chapter. You have to keep reminding like, yourself that that's the case as well. I think we said that in the last podcast. It was like, like, what point do we sort of forget that Lister is 15 and like is acting like fifteen year old even though biologically he's not. Well you just gotta wait for the next wanking joke to turn up, which is usually about five pages away. <laughs> they say in backwards you're never more than five pages away from a wank. 
But yeah, I thought when I was reading through and it goes into the sort of dialogue from Gunman, list of using the AR machine to have sex, it kind of, like, the fact that he was younger clashed with that. It's like, it's more, it's more of a sort of tragic joke when it's a, <laughs> like, a man in his late 20s yeah. uh, resorting to that. But yeah, a 15-year-old and a computer game, of course they're going to be using it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe they should be doing more to stop the 15-year-old from... Uh doing that I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they, they go back and forth parent. as to whether like they mentioned specifically that, that their minds aren't 15 but <clears> yeah it does seem to be inconsistent all the same even though that a lampshade is hung on it yeah they give Lister's chronological age as 107 <laughs> that's good can't be asked working that one out but I'm pretty sure it's yeah, fine I assume Rob did the work yeah. in 96 <laughs> <laughs> figure that out I thought it was just something that we obviously something in the back of our heads must have been there because we mentioned it last podcast. And I just remember I didn't realize he actually mentioned the biological clock. Yeah, Bob's good at addressing it, albeit briefly, certain things that are like kind of almost like not inconsistencies, but things that are probably going to be in the reader's mind. Just like, hang on, what about that? Or like, he, he's good at addressing them quickly and then moving on, I think. There's a nice one, it's in a couple of chapters time, but while we're on the subject, there's when they're sort of recapping the history of the Agonoids, which we'll get onto, there's just a, a really brief mention that at some point the Earth just disappeared. Mm. Yes! Very nice, yeah. Which is a little nod back to Garbage World and what happened there. Yeah. Yeah, he's good. He's, I mean, you know, you know, you know with Rob, he's the sci-fi one, right? So... Uh... <laughs> yeah, we categorically... <laughs> prove that on the last podcast um but yeah he's i mean like he his main drive other than comedy i think with with these books is certainly sci-fi like you just just know that he's an aspiring sci-fi writer rather than um basically anything else really when he's writing the books and he can, it comes through especially as the this book um starts to forget that it's a comedy or that mm. it's you know it's it starts to shed the humor a little bit in 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 return for sci-fi and body horror and oh, genuine horror you know <laughs> yeah here's a point right the the many 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 years into the future even before there was a big three million year gap why doesn't Crichton have a Kindle <laughs> for the same reason that uh, neither Holly or Crichton have the internet. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, that's a good point. We decided that the that the internet doesn't exist in this in, in the Red Dwarf yeah. universe. That is their big difference: is the internet was never invented. So therefore, if the internet wasn't invented, then the dissemination of information digitally has been severely hamstrung. Therefore, the Kindle was never invented. Therefore, paper books are, are still popular. So it's sort of like a fork in the road where yeah. the Red okay. Dwarf universe, Tim Berners-Lee never came up with the World Wide Web and everything just... Yeah. But instead, they concentrated on their space programs yeah. and their <laughs> robotics. Yeah, a bit too uh, yeah, much on okay. the robotics programs, to be fair yeah. to you. <laughs> so they managed to like change the world in that direction, but not in the mm. way that the internet would have done. I like that. So the thing is, there's like it, one it, mention of like an email or something in, yeah, one of the, yeah. in one of the... I think it's in Last Human. And it's like, that's the only mention ever of anything like that. <laughs> it's last human, it was probably a typo. In another way, it is an early 90s version <laughs> of retrofuturism. Yeah. yeah. Funnily enough, I don't know why, just happens like to be a, a nine... Like, <laughs> thing, like, yeah. Like, yeah, email was, was definitely starting to creep into conscious, public consciousness in mid-90s. Off topic, but I remember Better Than Life, the Red Dwarf fan club magazine, having an email section in around 94... 
uh, they introduced that. So yeah. it's definitely amongst the nerds. Emails definitely. Yeah, definitely. The other excellent bit from the start of this chapter is Rimmer being bitter and twisted and yeah. <laughs> sitting there just fuming over everything that's happened with his <laughs> with his quote about democracy, which has lived on. It's fair yeah. to say. Yeah, <laughs> it's been used by us many a time. Specifically during 2016. Um, and then again in 2017, and then again in 2019. Yeah. Thankfully, retired temporarily. <laughs> um, it's, one of those, it's one of those bits, this kind of rant, uh, it, along with Holly's bit about the onions, of, of, in my mind, I've always felt like it's from infinity. Yeah. Or, or, or better than life. Like It, it feels like a full-throated Grandaler classic bit of Rimmer stuff, basically. Yeah, and that's a compliment. Yeah, that it could have easily fitted into. Oh yeah, yeah. Either of the first two novels, which are pretty damn near perfect. Mm. Yeah, we've gone on about it enough that um, that Rob is more able to capture the tone of the Grant Naylor yeah. books, and it, this is just another example of that. So going back to the uh, AR thing, there was a, a couple of interesting points that were raised by our viewers slash no listeners <laughs> slash readers. Quinn Drummer points out that given how Lister and Cat almost died after months trapped in an AR game, you'd think they'd have been a bit more careful about procuring it and using it now. Especially as Lister, presumably, unless it healed on Backwards World, still has the U equals BTL scar in his arm. But I'm glad Rob acknowledges BTL at least. How would that even work with the scar? That hurts my brain. No, don't think about that. Do you think the (laughs) scar would have become raw at some point and then gone away? But all the things that yeah. affected that happened in a different universe. I don't know. Well, no. Hang on. <laughs> yes, maybe. Because yeah. <laughs> originally he was supposed to be on Backwards World to return to just the point before he got trapped on Garbage World. Yes. But then the 10 years that followed. Yeah. Yeah. He would have had that unhappen to him. Maybe. Or the scar disappeared as soon as he arrived. Because we have established that there's a sudden state shift that happens when you yeah. enter the backwards universe to put you in line with your timeline there. Uh, Dan, Danny's, D- Daddy's having trouble. Everyone. Yeah, my... Yeah. <laughs> um, Got another Yeah, I, and I guess the in answer to Quinn Drummer's, like, it's a good point, but yeah. I guess this is one of those things where you can say, well, they're, they're both 15 dickheads, so... Oh, Lister's yeah. 15 and he's a dickhead, so, yeah, he's reckless. And it's kind yeah. of, you know, you don't really think about things like that. He's probably forgotten all about that. I think life. they said it's a safer system as well. Like, I'm sure yeah, Crichton, yeah. Has, Crichton has checked it over and made sure that it's not as dangerous or as addictive as BTL. And plus also yeah. it's got a get It's a Peggy 12. Stuff. Yeah. Which yeah. is ironic considering it still uses probes in the brain. Yeah, yeah that's, which, the, that's the tricky thing because yeah. I never imagined the Series 6 and 7 AR working no. in that electrodes inserted into the head. In the same way that Better Than Life, I think I thought that was the difference yep. between an AR game and a uh, total immersion game. Well, the Series mm. Six AR sets are directly influenced by the VR boom that was happening at the time. Yeah, and I can't really, I can't remember the name of the headsets, but there was one in particular that actually got some traction. Virtuality, they were called. Virtuality, yeah. There's a kind of Virtual <laughs> X or something. Was a was a big mm. bulky headset that looks a lot like, um, yeah, show notes. There'll be yeah. plenty of this in the show notes. And actually, currently at the moment, there is a fair amount of money, you can assume, being put into researching uh, direct brain interfacing in VR. Uh, it's something that Valve Software are doing. Um, and terrifyingly, in conjunction with Elon Musk, from what I can gather. Um, <laughs> so, And Hideo Kojima's involved in some way as well. Again, I'll uh, dig out some, some stories there. 
That's so interesting. lovely mm. VR virtual horror that you can't get out of. Gabe Newell's turning <laughs> into like I don't know if he's a billionaire yet. He's the Valve software head of Valve software. I'm not sure if he's a billionaire yet, but he's kind of heading that way, and he's always kind of looking for the next big weird thing to break into. And so direct brain interfacing is the current current thing, which no one wants. No one, literally, no one wants it. <laughs> um, but there you go. I can see medical usage, but not possibly. Medical. Yeah, I don't want it with my entertainment though. I'm perfectly happy with this. A lot of yeah. your bog standard <laughs> VR. <laughs> Fucking hell! I'll stick with PSVR. Strap first. a screen to my face. That's about as immersive as I want to get. <laughs> but anyway, the other sort of controversial element, it turns out, from um, <laughs> this section uh, where it goes into the gunman stuff, is a controversial comma. <laughs> That's placed in um, Lister's list of games that he plays. The sporting simulations like Zero G Kickboxing and Wimbledon. It has a comma after the Zero G, implying that Zero G and Kickboxing are separate games. Yeah, saying Zero G foot is short for the football rather than yeah. it being a variant. Yeah. yeah. International debris. I always heard it as Zero G Kickboxing in the series. Clem, me too. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's what Lister is saying. Yeah. Him, and everyone he heard even it, minds so. Kickboxing while he's saying Zero G. Yep. However. No shit. Oh, mate, what? Ready for I debunking. hold in my mortal hands <laughs> a copy of Son of Soup, uh, the script book uh, that contains the script to Gunman of the Apocalypse. And in here, there is a comma after <gasps> Zero G. Craig Charles, so, you fucking amateur. Yeah. What we can surmise from that is that it was supposed to be two separate items in a list, but in Craig's performance... They became one. Zero G. It's better. Craig's performance is better because he, he mimes out the whole kind of thing. Like the idea of zero G kickboxing. Like yeah. The idea yeah. of just being able to. I mean, one good roundhouse to the face and they go flying forever. <laughs> That's it. You've got to wait for them to come back to each other for you. Get the yeah. Yeah. It's essentially whoever gets the first hit in is the <laughs> yes. one that wins because the other one abandons the uh, ring. Uh, it's interesting that zero G and then kickboxing, they're two separate games. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like referring to to use the current thing, uh, FIFA rather than FIFA football two thousand and nineteen or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Pro Evo instead of Pro Evolution. It's soccer. not called Pro Evo anymore, Granddad, it's called E Football. E football. <laughs> football for Northerners. <laughs> football for but, no yeah. one. No one will play E football. It's basically future Madden. Yeah, but that's interesting though, because zero G football is uh, an actual physical sport. What? in the Red Dwarf universe because Jim Bexton yeah. Speed plays it so it's not it, the the analogy wouldn't be like calling it like FIFA or Madden or anything for like it being a video game it would be he's playing zero G football at like the actual like it'd be like saying you know, association kickboxing Wimbledon when he actually means right. association yeah, I don't know <laughs> maybe well like people rugby fans refer to either league or union oh, as shorthand. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I guess yeah. Playing union kickboxing in, Wimbledon. So in the yeah, in the Red Dwarf universe, if you say zero G, then people know that you mean zero G soccer. Yeah. If you uh, zero G football rather. <laughs> which is different to zero G soccer. Which may or may not exist. Anyway, I'm glad we've got that cleared up. Yeah, that was clear as mud. <laughs> yeah, interesting that is technically half an ad lib from from Craig, he, he took liberties. The other line there in that section is when he's defending himself about the ball girl. Speaking of taking liberties. <laughs> she's not jailbait, she's 17. She's older than me. Which is, that's what, that's the bit that jarred with me. That all Officer. Of a sudden, oh yeah, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's just suddenly reminded us. <laughs> Not older than you, you are 120 odd. <laughs> well, yeah. Without wanting to linger on this too much, there's another comment from International Debris. There's some awkward skirting around age and sex in this book. Regardless of their physical ages, Cat and Lister are definitely adults. Cat, who's what, probably late 30s after his 10 years in Backworld, having sex with a 16 year old is questionable. And Lister describing the CG ball girl as older than me is, again, not actually true. Mm. It's a minefield, isn't it? It's it's awkward to even think about. I don't want to, like... Like, when I read it, I didn't think about that too much. But, yeah, the, physiologically, like, that makes sense. But, like... Again, we would have been reading this when we were younger than 17. And, and watching was... the TV series when we were younger than 17. So it's yeah, just... Yeah, I read this when I was 15. Yeah, so. yeah. So you just... It just... I wasn't old enough to watch the episode when I first watched the episode. <laughs> yeah. It's 12. Go. Later on in this chapter, Rimmer is switched to low power mode. <laughs> it's a good Which idea, again, It's weird how often the most recent TV, Red Dwarf, comes up as having parallels with the books because like, throughout this entire run of book club episodes, it feels like we've said The Promised Land at least once per episode of an idea yeah. that was seeded back then that's also turned up. Mm. Obviously, with any Rob idea... It's just parallel thinking, and they've got to the same thing in different ways. But yeah, here, being on low power mode makes Rimmer transparent uh, rather than black and white and mono like it does in The Promised Land. Yeah. I do wonder as well, and we'll put, we'll get this get to this a little bit later when we, we're talking about more striking similarities between Rob and Doug's solo ideas. Mm. But I, I do wonder whether there was a little bucket of ideas, quite a, or maybe a big bucket of ideas, that Rob immediately used for backwards and that, Doug is only yeah. just getting to like that aren't owned by either of them, but just kind of existed before the split. I don't know bits that they were talking about amongst themselves yeah. when writing series five and six and mm. the last human. Yeah, yeah. I mean the, the similarities between what happens later on and the movie that never happened, but but in two different ways we know elements from the movie. But anyway, we'll get to that when we get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah. So it's interesting, the transparent thing, because there's that kind of that effect on Demons and Angels with Rimmer fading in and out when he's low on power before mm. they go to the low ship. Or when before they go to yeah. the high ship, because his Rimmer kind of fading in and out. So, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of and in, um, Yeah, what was the, what's, what's the line about him? He can't sleep because he can see through his eyelids. And it seems like yeah. a design flaw. <laughs> so the plot of this little section is that they found a mess of cables and wiring and bits of hard drive in space and conclude that it's holly and so they go they go and recover it and that's what sort of happens in the next chapter which has some interesting things in but i tend to agree with pete part three who says the spacewalk seems quite superfluous to me i find all the stuff describing 15 year old lister is quite strange i'm not sure what we should read into bits where he's made a certain choice specifically because he's going through puberty is that characterization that's something that we kind of talked about last time round of sort of being a teenager makes you do things that you don't want to do necessarily yeah. so lister gets frustrated here because he doesn't mean to be a dick to Rimmer, but he can't help it. He's not able to control his brain because of all the hormones that are flying around it. So mm. I actually quite liked that. Mm. Yeah, and and it's properly addressing the situation, which again, <laughs> it, it Rob has his cake and eats it because just in the last chapter, Lister was using his age as an excuse, his mental age as an excuse, whereas this is saying his mental age cannot be an excuse. But it's um, mm. yeah, it's odd one. To me, the spacewalk thing is it's sort of seeding the bravado that's mm. going to happen with Ace later on. 
But also, yeah, I think that it's to do with Lister being, because he's 15, he's kind of a bit overconfident about stuff without really thinking yeah. about it, like just kind of being very driven and just kind of not really thinking. It's important because it, it shows that he's prone to stuff like this bef- even before we uh, Ace arrives. Because otherwise, we could maybe assume that wrongly that he's just trying to play up, he's just trying to impress Ace, which... Yes, 100% he is trying to do, but it's not that, that well, isn't yeah. the only thing that was driving him to do that later on. Yeah, it, it, It's kind of inbuilt into him at the moment. I was reading this the other day, and um, it just occurred to me, I was like, why the fuck is Crichton, why is he wearing a helmet? <laughs> he doesn't need a helmet. Really good point. Because I guess that, that's what the jetpacks are attached to. Yeah. So it's just someone convenient. else mentioned it in one of the comments, I can't remember who brought it up. So Quinn. Yeah. Was it Quinn just said basically, yeah, why why is Crichton got a helmet? Crichton <laughs> shouldn't true. need a helmet in space. No. But yeah, I, I think this might just be like yeah, he needs the jetpacks, and the jetpacks are attached to the spacesuit, so therefore he needs to put the spacesuit on. Oh right, okay, I see. So it's more like yeah. okay. So it would just be flying around and would be dark. Because okay, yeah, yeah, otherwise okay. this would be a very odd juxtaposition with what happens later on. <laughs> where Crichton's perfectly yeah. fine being exposed to the, the vacuum of space. Yeah. With his anus. <laughs> With his ass hanging out. <laughs> Big area. That's later. <laughs> Here they bring Holly in. There's a bit of dialogue from Whitehall, Captain Oaks yeah. thing, which is rare for this book where there's just a bit that's wholesale lifted. Do you know what? If you're going to lift a bit, then that's that's an all time of that bit. Yeah, you're going to do it. It should be good. <laughs> so good. And it is, it is like wholesale as well, isn't it? I think. Down to the last bit of punctuation, unlike certain yeah. other lifts from episodes. Down to the last bit of punctuation, it's it's. But it's interesting how seamless all of the episode transitions seem to work with this. It's effortless it's between like goes from like, yeah. I, I I don't think it doesn't feel clunky. All it all of a sudden it just blends in really nicely. It's doing the the thing that Infinity did so well of molding different episodes together. We've started off with the intro to Gunman, and now we're about to go into what is undoubtedly uh, dimension jump when ace arrives yeah with a bit of white hole chucked in as well yeah it's nice yeah it stops it from being too close to a novelization whereas yeah. the bits that were lifted from the tv series in last human and once again for the fourth podcast in a row we're shitting on last human <laughs> in comparison to that. Well, i mean the, the comparison has to be drawn you know yeah. they, they, these books were literally released in opposition to each other almost so Clem, Clem says, I suspect Lister's spinning end over end in his spacesuit was inspired by the same thing happening to Talby in Darkstar. That's very likely. I mean, it it would have been more likely if it had happened in Blade Runner through <laughs> inspiration for Red Dwarf. But, um, but and yeah. there's, there's Darkstar, there's also 2001 as well. Yeah, we're gonna, we, we will make Ian watch Darkstar at some point, don't worry. I've not seen Darkstar either, so it'd be nice to, it'd be nice to watch it. Yeah. Did it, was it Ian, did you start watching it and just thought, this is shite and stop watching it? No, I fell asleep. Oh, you fell asleep, right? Yeah. Darkstar or 2001? 2001, I thought was shit. <laughs> How very, very dare you. Darkstar, I was enjoying but fell asleep and like tried again and again to watch it but kept falling asleep. And that was when I was 18, so now I fall asleep on the sofa most nights. For me, the film I have tried multiple times to get through and not, which is probably fair enough, which is Apocalypse Now, because a film is too long. <laughs> Don't like that Marlon Brando anyway, too much acting. Too much acting. Yeah, they turn Holly back on. And the crowd go wild. The crowd absolutely lose their <laughs> yeah. shit. Yeah, the whole of part three is just inaudible due to noise <laughs> from the crowd. 
But it says um, tens of thousands of pixels whirled and whizzed around the screen and began settling into a shape. That's not many pixels <laughs> for, <laughs> yeah. for a big display unit. Because, for example, HD currently is 1920 by 1080 pixels, which is over 2 million pixels. Yeah. So Holly is really, really low res. He's, he's, um, it, it's a, it, he's gone for a retro aesthetic. Well, he's probably back how he is, he's got his Series 1 look. Yeah. <laughs> it is all Wasn't there some pixelating and stuff going on in Whitehall that maybe this is what this is describing? I can't remember. Like, it, Was there a pixelation reform? Yeah, there's a mention in, in the book when Holly gets his IQ back, his mm. face explodes in a thousand pixels and rearranges and all this kind of stuff. Well, in, in 96, um, 640 by 480 was the um, was the... Big resolution. <laughs> the, what the fuck am I trying to say? It was like it was SVGA, so that was the that was the big one. So six forty by four eighty, and that's three hundred and seven thousand two hundred pixels. Danny, you just you just used that cal- You must have used a calculator. I did use a calculator. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> so, so that's three hundred thousand pixels. So yeah, still more than still more than this. Yeah, much more. We're really getting under the big issues here. Oh, absolutely. This is absolutely what we should be talking about. Well, that's what this podcast is for, is doing all the shit that other people don't think about. And and even going into 1997, 640 by 480 was still the New Year's resolution. <laughs> yep. Not good. Not good. <laughs> Terrible. And yeah, chapter three, Holly dies forever. Oh yeah, just fucking absolutely no fanfare, really, either. But then, I don't know, Holly's kind of permanently dis- like died... I'm trying to think, like, is there any point where we kind of assume Holly's just gone previously in the books? I don't think so. He's always kind of hanging about. We had uh, that sideways flash to Holly yeah. earlier in the book to sort of re-establish, yeah, he's still there. He's still knocking about. And that was the same, like, when they were trapped in the game, we cut back to Holly. Obviously, in Better Than Life, he gets turned off and he's in peril, but he gets turned back on and everything's fine, yeah. so... And I guess this death isn't like it, it's a comic book death because there's a very clear like if they go back to this red dwarf um, towards the end of the book everything's fine and they go back to red dwarf and, you know everyone's alive they could get Holly up and running again easily off off page they could just yeah get the rest of the bits yeah and it'll be it'll be the equivalent of um, Lister fixing Crichton yes exactly yeah yeah. Uh, so maybe it would reboot with Hattie Hayridge's face. <laughs> it's like in the in the a fifth book. It's like Holly uh, resembled nineteen nineties comedian Hattie Hayridge exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> says it's a short but sweet chapter, and I wish we could have had more of this in the book. It almost feels like a lost Norman scene, and the interplay between the characters is spot on. It really works when you imagine the actors' performances. Yeah, yeah. The back reference to onions is very yeah, good. They, yeah, yeah. I remember something about onions. Onions. I take it all back. I remember. And also towards the end of this, it's not really made a lot of. I mean, you, you find out more about the direness of the situation in chapter four. You have Crichton. The enormity of the situation hits him in a moment towards the end, where he just he says, he says Crichton sits back in the chair, almost slumps back in the chair because he just knows immediately that how long ago yeah. it was that you know he just knows that they're fucked basically. Yeah, it's got the old classic ending the chapter on a cliffhanger thing from Rob. Yeah. Holly just says one word, agonoids. <laughs> Even though we don't really know what agonoids are, 
just yet. The next chapter goes and gives the backstory. Yeah. And it's it's using the same trick as the section in Infinity where they describe the cat evolution. It's, it's written sort of as a quasi-religious text. There's a lot of sentences, short sentences that start with and. And humankind built Agonoids in its own image. Yeah. Yeah. So the Agonoids then. Yeah. Everybody needs good agonoids. <laughs> so uh, this is the thing that obviously, uh, like, simulants were already a thing by the time this book was written, right? Yeah. So and simulants were never used. Are they used in the books? I can't remember. No. So why the name change? Yeah, because they are essentially simulants, right? They are. Yeah, the description of them here of having sort of grey faces makes me think of the Nicholas Ball Nicholas simulant. Ball. Yeah, exactly uh, from Justice. That yep. kind of look. Um, and there's a bit slightly later on where they recycle a bit of dialogue from Justice mm-hmm. about simulants, which just makes me think, yeah, they're just rebadged simulants, basically. They've rebadged them, you fool. <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, it's fair enough. But then, I think, yeah, it is a weird one because like, there is no rhyme or reason to just rename simulants unless they are specifically looking to do something different. Are they too um, similar to replicants is that the, i don't know it's, maybe it's, it was it's, a name thing yeah is similar i don't know yeah. seems weird because it's because it's simulants work f- perfectly fine and it's agonoids i suppose the idea of ag- i suppose agonoids are maybe no because who is it that mentions that the simulants were a war built for a war that never took place that's that's gunman again isn't that's it? gunman that, that yeah. that's almost like a re like a rejig of what simulants are because i think the backstory of simulants is that they weren't necessarily created for war they were created to be part organic versions of mechanoids but the agonoids are specifically mentioned as these are killing machines these were created only for war whereas i think simulants weren't created only for war Um, but then i would not be able to tell you where that information comes from it might just be an assumption that i have in my head originally in justice it pretty much says that they're androids that have gone wrong. Scranton says yeah. they're not androids, they're simulants. The basic difference is that an android would never rip off a human's head and spit down its neck. <laughs> and are they meant to be cyborgs, or are they meant to be 100% fabricated? Well, the agonoids seem to be 100% metal. Yeah, that's true. Okay, with skin, yeah. Because they can get spare parts from each other and etc. It's basically a Terminator. Imagine, like, a, just, like, wrapped in a yeah, sort of yeah, organic yeah. skin. Dave says, based on the descriptions here and their assimilation of each other's body parts, I basically imagine the Agonoids is looking like the Borg from Star Trek. Yeah. I wonder if that was an influence on Rob. Insert, I was about to call my lawyer joke here. And again, <laughs> again, look at Nicholas Ball, and you can see that as well. You can see that where that, you know, yeah, yeah. where you can get that idea from. And I do love the, I, I really love the, the cannibalisation aspect of the Agonoids. It just adds so, so much... Um, kind of yeah. unique character to them. Well, they're just built to survive, aren't they? So they just yeah. by hook or by crook, and they'll just. But it's the same flaw that human beings have. Like I said, and agonoids are created in like the human being's big flaw is humanity eating itself, basically, and wars. Yeah. And and there, there they are, like you know, the agonoids. It's almost magnified hundredfold of just constantly cannibalizing each other and taking parts and and reducing their numbers. Mm. Fatally. Warbadog says they're just scary simulants, really, or Terminators. Mm. But the Red Dwarf universe doesn't need to be mm. pared down to simplistic categories. There'll be lots of similar things. Yeah, true. And I think, yeah, we can say that they're similar to simulants, and perhaps the reason why Rob changed it to being 
to having a different name and being a separate race was just because he wanted to clear the decks and define the, their backstory and their characteristics. Yeah, okay. Without confusing matters. Agonoids can be simulants. Like, simulant could be a superset. And, so, you know. it, yeah. yeah, so essentially droids are kind of like, there is a like, there are categories of droids, and there's mechanoids, there's simulants, there's agonoids, there's... Homeo sapienoids. There's other ones now. There's the bloody mm-hmm. what are the new ones, the exponoids. They're a thing. Exponoids yeah. and what was the the dominator and and lads? Oh, were they Homo sapienoids in the beginning? Well, let's let's get onto all that. Should we get onto it now? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, in the synopsis for the Red Dwarf movie, which oh, was never made, yeah. which was kind of made. <laughs> yeah, the booklet mentioned the that the crew were under threat from Homo sapienoids, which are essentially the same as agonoids. The same thing, <laughs> yeah, which is confusing. And then the movie didn't get made. Doug needed a script at the last minute for series ten, and so the beginning was born from the embers of the movie script, and they became dominators. Well, the dominator is a position, is is the is the the big lad at the top. They had a special name, yeah, but I can't quite remember it. One second. Uh, the internet's premier Red Dwarf fan site. Kind of mean Titan. <laughs> uh, now Googling and <laughs> going on to the Red Dwarf wiki. <laughs> the lads in the beginning are known as Simulant Generals. Right. Which appears to be like a set above Simulants. They're like super Simulants. Right. Okay. Which makes sense. Yeah. So what's what's interesting to me, like the big connection between Homo sapienoids as we read about in the flyer and saw in the beginning and agonoids is the main goal to fuck humanity, basically. Like rev- yeah. a revenge mission on humanity and then tracking down the last human. And this is what makes me think that this, this was a concept that was formulated by Grant Naylor yeah. and was in an ideas bucket and... Rob just went and used it, and then, yeah, yeah. And then they Doug both decided later. to pluck that particular item yeah. from the bucket and did it in their own ways. Yeah, almost certainly. Yeah, although it is completely speculation, but um, <laughs> almost certainly. <laughs> almost certainly. But like, it just it, what we've decided. Happened. There's just so much, <laughs> and like, not only that, but we're, we're skipping ahead a little bit. But Crichton gets his ass stuck in the hull of Starbug to block a hole. Yeah, and the exact same thing happens to Hoagie in the beginning, and we could make the inference from that 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 also happens in the movie, or is supposed Possibly. to be, because Possibly. Hoagie's in the movie, something. or something like that. So again, not like, everything from the beginning is necessarily taken from the movie script, and we don't really know which bits were. But yeah. it's a huge coincidence. Massive. They both have their new versions of the simulants with very similar premises, and also someone's ass gets stuck in it. <laughs> A robot's ass gets stuck in a in a ship to plug a, a hull breach. Yeah, absolutely fascinating bit of uh, yeah synchronicity, and that's about I'd as far as I'd love to know. It. Yeah, I'd... I would love to know <laughs> if that was if there was going to be something in the last human about that, or a potential idea for us for a hypothetical series seven. It's an impossible question to ask because, like, as fans, we have unprecedented access to both Rob and Doug at the moment through Twitter. Like more access mm. to them than we've ever had throughout the history of the show. The problem is, is that it is impossible for us to ask either of them anything about this because it, it's basically asking, "Did anyone steal this idea, or did you come up with it?" Like yeah. it's a really <laughs> awkward question, and one that, given the current 
legal situation <laughs> between the parties involved would probably don't really it probably constitutes putting a trial in danger like you know we, we might actually it might actually be contempt <laughs> we of court we'd be up for contempt of court if we asked this because <laughs> um, yeah down with the because both of them would just be like no that was my idea like it will be the knee jerk reaction regardless of what the truth is yeah. So and then they'll both sue each other for ripping each other off. <laughs> yeah, it's like, will, yeah. yeah, Doug will be like, wait, wait a minute, I never read backwards. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And Rob will be like, I never watched the beginning. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck yeah. <laughs> Another aspect of the Agonoids is their names. Before we is... get into this, can I take a straw poll? Yeah. So, what is it like? Twelve-year-old Ian. 16-year-old Danny, no, 15-year-old Danny, 14-year-old Danny. 12-year-old Danny, maybe. Um, Did you struggle getting the puns with these names? The only one I did understand was Made in Taiwan. I didn't get that one because I didn't even know that Made in Taiwan, you know, all the best stuff is Made in Taiwan. Um, (laughs) But Cheap and Nasty took a long time. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. That's a a tricky one. Yeah. Pizza Crap, I remember getting straight away. I think pizza I crap, get I was like, one. haha, is there the words crap in there? That's quite cool, because it's a swear word. I didn't get junk heat. Junk, ju- junk like, heat. Whole f- yeah. that, that one's difficult in text because of the silent D. Yeah, because it's uh, like gin. If you know what, if you know about the word gin and you know about those kind of words... G- then, gin as in a genie rather than a... As in an old word for a, a genie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can spell gin like that after a couple, but... I've <laughs> <laughs> had some gin. The gin and the gin. Yeah, so I only got it when I first read this book. I only got that they were joke names when it was mentioned their joke names, and then after that, I only really got what the joke names were when I listened to Rob's audiobook. Oh, I was okay. going to say, I think the audiobook I may have listened to before I read the book, so therefore, Ooh, yeah, I'm that's not weird. A, a fair test in this. You would have been blindsided by Goodman of the Apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, I've not, I've not heard the audiobook version. So, how is he pronouncing these words? Is he changing the way they're pronounced, or is he literally reading them as you sh- as you're meant to read? That's them? a good point. Like, is cheap and nasty, or is it cheap and nasty? Um, yeah, it's he's not saying the words that are the puns. He's saying. Reading them, yeah, yeah, he's saying them phonetically more. So, yeah, we'll 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 have clips in the show notes. Taiwan, I seem to remember. Definitely get clips in the show notes because it's. I think it's all on YouTube. Yeah, Um, and it's. I think it's morally fine to listen to it on YouTube because I don't think it's available properly. No, it's not. It's not legally available. Um, we have lots of comments about the names. Pete, part three, I recall it taking way too long for young me to twig that the names yep. of Agonoids were all creaky puns. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just thought there was, they were weird. <laughs> weird alien-y names. Uh, Dave, similarly to Danny, says, I remember when I first read this, I got the Maiden Taiwan pun immediately, but all the others took me ages to work out. Yeah, that's, I'm in that boat. Dealing the names of the Agonoids feel like single entendres and aren't as clever as you would have hoped. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, because they presumably would have been named by, like, techies. And there's a th- yeah. thing I like about techies is that they're usually the ones responsible for naming things, and they're also really shit at naming things. Yeah. <laughs> that, like a, a computer bus, meaning a data line, that, you know, the, the data or electricity goes from one, one place to another on a board, is literally called a bus because it takes things from one place to another. And there's nothing more clever than that. It's a terrible name. But, like, I just like that because it's just someone thought that was hilarious. <laughs> and it's lasted as well because USB and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's still part it's, of that whole process. Yeah. So you've also got, you've also got um, signal buses for, like, audio desk as well. Mm, yeah, and it's called a bus because... <laughs> Yeah, just it's ridiculous. Although I'm saying that, I, that's a piece of knowledge I got from my 
college tutor in 1999, so he might have been talking shit for all I know, but I'm pretty sure. No, I think that's true. true. It's the same way as, like, why a bug is called a bug is because it was literally a fucking insect caught in the circuit boards that caused a shot. So, you know, these words have very humble origins. Python is named after Monty Python, etc. Luckily, I mean, so Boston Dynamics doesn't call its robots humiliating names. It just kicks the shit out of them publicly instead. No, it it just creates incredibly terrifying parkour doing robots just going to end everyone. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure most of the people who listen to this will have seen that video, but if not, it'll be in the show. Oh, there's loads at this point as well, like the most recent yeah. ones. Are... Well, there was a video recently that's just the <laughs> amount of dexterity and skill that these robots have. I remember when Asimo could run across the stage and his feet barely touched <laughs> the floor and be like, oh my God, he's running. And he, <laughs> this robot is running across the floor. And it's aloft it's, by it's it. both of its feet are off the ground at the same time. That's incredible. And now these fuckers are doing backflips. <laughs> it's just insane, I man. distinctly remember it was one of the first Big Dog videos. This was, It was possibly the second one, and he was just walking along going, zzz, 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 and someone came along and just kicked him in the side, and it yeah. did the correcting, like crossing over its legs. And when yeah. I first saw that, I got this, this feeling that I've never had before, this chill. Of just I think like, what that is, oh, like uncanny valley chill. Do you know what it, it looks like? Two people carrying something, carrying yeah. a box, and imagine pushing the box. Oh, and yeah. it's like those yeah. two people are kind of. But it also has that kind of insect quality to it as well, which I think is really yeah. kind of looks like a big spider with its big chunky and legs. It sounds and I like think a box there's something of bees. about that. And it sounds and the, the, I mean like I was I was very aware about how fucking quiet these boss metallic robots are yeah, now. They are. Nice. You can't even hear them coming anymore. <laughs> so they're going to kill you silently now. So that's going to be good. I mean that that's what they'll be used for, right? They're going to. I I, I, for, I they'll, for they'll they'll be they'll be the ground troops in the next Afghanistan ground war. <laughs> like not even joking. <laughs> anyway, Merry Christmas. Because <laughs> that's when this is going to get released. By the time it's edited, all this shit out. Well, Clem makes the point that presumably the Agonoids predate humankind abandoning war in favour of sport, and therefore yeah. they also predate golf. It's part of the process, though, isn't it? Because they're, they're removing themselves from the equation and, and putting it onto the Agonoids. Yeah. It's always war by proxy, isn't it? That's the thing. So the Agonoid war was maybe the last, the last war. It was so bad. So awful that um, that's when they decided to yeah go towards the well, let's do it by a sport instead. Yeah, that's how war works. That's how the first world war worked. It was so big. Yeah, and then there was, no there was never wars. any wars again after. Yeah, and there was that little football match that they were trying out with. <laughs> they were trying that out as a way to see whether they could yeah. settle the differences. It was just and... a pilot scheme one Christmas, but it never took off. <laughs> the uh, the fact that it might have been the first war that the entire world fought together against almost an external threat. I'm pretty sure Rob would have thought about this. Actually, would have thought about this timeline because he's shown that he's got it. He's got it well. Yeah, it, this, front is the, this is the head. section where they talk about the Earth disappeared one day. Yeah, so it's he's definitely attempting to have a thread that runs through at least the novel universe where he makes sure that it all ties up. Yeah, that the his the, the Earth uh, history. There is, the, there is a history, yeah. and like, sorry again, but. <laughs> Last human, when <laughs> we spent ages trying to figure out. Hang on, so where the fuck is it? Do these gulfs come from? Where, where, why is this asteroid there? Who's in the Omnizone? Why are they all at the Omnizone? What the fuck is going on? Well, Rob obviously got the continuity cheat sheet in the divorce. So he had all the resources. Yeah, worked the computer. He had the files in his CPU. Anyway, <laughs> back on Starbug. 
dimension jump begins to happen. Yeah. There's a big old crash. Crichton gets sent tumbling through Starbug, um, which struck me as a parallel to Lister tumbling through space in the spacewalk a couple of yeah. chapters before. Yeah. The 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 thing about the Starbug spinning and then Rimmer trying to counter it by running in the opposite direction like a hamster wheel. That confused me, but that's just because I can't imagine. 3D things. No, absolutely. That is a very confusingly like. It's I'm... a very strange idea, but it's like trying to counter the movement of Star. Starbuck is spinning constantly, like on its like in the way yeah. that Starbuck normally does whenever it's hit. It's like kind of spinning forwards like that. But you're kind of running on the gantry as if like in the opposite direction. So you're always kind of static while the Starbuck is literally spinning around you. And you're like a hamster wheel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, so that's like, what yeah, they but say. It's like the hamster wheel is kind of automatic. Yeah, you're mm. not making Starbucks spin. You're in the middle. You're trying to. You're trying to constantly, you know, match the speed. So he's trying to get Crichton to match the speed of that in order to keep, so they can concentrate on what they're doing because otherwise everything. What, is... What's the thing about Crichton's trying to grab hold of the gyroscope? What's I don't. I've realised I'm not really sure what a gyroscope is. What was that? So you don't know what a gyroscope is. I'm not 100%. A gyroscope is normally something that holds balance and it's usually done by it spinning like there's like a little uh, a toy you can get that's like a little um it's like a spinning top and then you put a piece of string through it and you throw the you throw the string out and it just holds its own balance and it works off um ro- rotational motion to hold things steady it's how you know why the earth stays constant. And it's it's and there's something wrong with the gyroscope in Starbug. Like, and if they can get the gyroscope to stabilize, then Starbug will stop spinning. So there's a physical thing in Starbug that keeps kind of keeps balance on a level. Yeah, I get yeah. the impression that it's a part of it's fallen out, and they're trying to get it slot it back in or something. But I couldn't. Yeah, it's like I've it'll get reengaged, that. and then Starbug will stop spinning, yeah. and then it will be able to control it because at the moment it's out of control, and no one can get it back. But as soon as you can put the gyroscope, that's when all of a sudden everything stops, and then. Lister and Cat go flying because they're no longer spinning with Starbug anymore. Yeah. Everything stops, and it's like you just get thrown at whatever speed Starbug was travelling at. <laughs> yeah, and that's why everyone gets fucked up. So There's a the really good video about what would happen if the Earth stopped spinning immediately, and it's like, it's horrific. <laughs> but it's a very interesting thought experiment. Notes in the show notes. How big show notes today. Yeah, it's yeah, a good one. So the Earth is spinning at something like twenty thousand miles an hour. So if you if the Earth just stopped spinning, everything at twenty everything would just go that way, twenty thousand miles an hour. <laughs> In all of the That's directions it can whiz. Yeah. Your mileage may vary. <laughs> Your miles per hour may vary. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's a bit of a confusing bit of um, action, but it, it basically, Starbucks spinning. Crichton and Rimmer can kind of deal with it. They try and stop it, but by doing so, Lister and Cat get thrown, and Lister gets knocked out. Cat breaks his leg. Yeah, dimension jump. And then yeah, Ace is already that, that's what caused it because Ace was the reason. And then yeah, same know, as dimension spoilers. jump, but it's it's implied to be a bit more fatal here. It's the, yeah, because it's mm. like with the other one, like Ace actually crashes into the ship itself, whereas with the other one, it's like that he went too close and they they crashed into a planet as well. Oh, and he does hit them, does he? Glances off them, doesn't he? He glances them in dimension yeah, jump and they go right. spinning down onto a planet. But it's the it's like what Ace says when he boards is that he materialized too close. So I, d- I don't picture that as glancing off in the same way as the TV series. I picture that as like a, a shockwave type thing is yeah. what's taken them out. Ah, okay, like, oh, a reality shock. That's quite cool. Yeah. But yes, this is all chapters that kind of run into each other, so we'll sort of rattle through 
Mm. This is where Crichton's ass gets dragged into the hall breach. Ass over elbow. And there's some brilliant Rimmer stuff looking for a voice-activated ore scoop. And <laughs> as Clem points out, uh, reminiscent of him obsessing over the start button in Better Than Life. <laughs> and it's that, it's that thing that we talked about of he's so angry that this ore scoop isn't voice-operated <laughs> that the fact that there would be no point in there being a voice-activated ore scoop is is irrelevant. Yeah. He's just angry that they didn't do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and again, yeah, International Debris says, I wonder if Doug got the hoagie idea from the beginning, from Crichton's arse here. <laughs> he got it from Crichton's buttski. <laughs> <laughs> Crichton really fucking loses it here when he's shouting at River and gets like, yeah. really, like, like he overrides his niceness chip and just... <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It feels very out of character for Crichton. Yeah, definitely. Still, still, Nidai says Crichton is generally funnier when he's forced to act calm, even when in extreme danger. And I hundred percent agree with that. Yeah, although the fact that what he comes up with is like in the moment, Rimmer's not even mad at him. He yeah. just understands why he's so pissed off. At him. Yeah. yeah, it tells us it tells us a lot about Rimmer. The fact that his reaction to Crichton doing that is just, yep, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it is a bit odd coming from Crichton. You in, encephalopathetic donkey gonad. <laughs> I mean, I think still in Anadise also said it uh, feels like Rob's love of this sort of line that Melty felt he had to cram into the book. Yeah. And I agree. Yeah. It's like you want to get it in there somewhere. If That's you came that kind voice of rather than Crichton's voice. <laughs> but I'm happy it's in there, put it that way. It's, yeah. a, it's a very, very good insult. <laughs> so then old Ace comes aboard. Nicely timed, I think, because you're almost forgetting about Ace at this point. Because you, you've just had a lot thrown at you about the Agonoids and Holly and the you know the various problems that the crew have got. And we've had a whole part on Backwards World since... Yeah, Ace is almost like he's. He, you haven't forgotten about him, but he's at the back of your mind. It's one of those things where, as a fan, you'd know that he was coming because you'd recognise that this was Dimension. <laughs> yeah, you've had the intro. But to Dimension <laughs> if there's some hypothetical people somewhere in the world that read the Red Dwarf novels without having seen the TV series, then I think they could be surprised. They exist. I don't know because there's also the the slight red herring that it's not the Agonoids because you could believe that it could be them. Yes, yeah. Boarding the ship true. because it says like a big, uh, big metal boot clomping down the stairs, and it's like you could yeah. easily have think it's one of them boarding the ship. Yeah, have I read this book before? I can't remember what I thought when I read that, but I was thinking I was very mindful of the fact that the agonizer have only just been mentioned there, and yeah. then as seeding. Yeah, that's fair enough. You probably are supposed to think it's agonoids. Yeah, Ace seems to have superhuman strength because he yeah. can like he moves. He's got one arm that's completely out of commission, as per the TV series, but he's able to move these massive girders and stuff with just one arm. And Crichton says that, you know, any human with two arms would struggle to even shift that. But you see, yeah, he seems to have some sort of superpowers. Um, There are accounts of people like parents who have lifted cars off of kids in crises mm. and stuff so like adrenaline can make you do stuff you regret it later because you, your body then fucking recovers but like at the time your adrenaline's yeah. pumping and you can do all sorts so yeah I, I can believe that fair enough what is less easy to shake off for me is that while I was reading this particular chapter I realised that um, Ace talks like Russell Brand <laughs> <laughs> that's he's stolen his whole aesthetic <laughs> from Ace Wimmer that makes so much sense well, old Chamburger, looks like you've got yourself in a bit of a pickle jar and screwed the lid down tight, and no mistake. 
<laughs> Situation's a bit fucky-wucky. <laughs> Salt of the Space Corps, the 4000s. We'd be lost without you, chaps, and no mistake. <laughs> <laughs> you're, almost, you're almost going into it. It'd be a terrible shame if something happened to it. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> Arms break, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> Not mine, hasn't. Mine, hasn't. But yeah, it's, I enjoy getting more of Crichton's confusion about who this other Arnold Rimmer is because it's you can see it in Robert's acting in um, in Dimension Jump, but there's very little script that's dedicated to it. He just kind of accepts that there's a, this other Rimmer who's appeared all of a sudden. But I like being in Crichton's head and him trying to figure out what it is. Yeah, mm. and then kind of how quickly he kind of accepts it as normal. Yeah. Presumably out of relief that there's someone here that is actually going to be able to yeah, help. There is not shit. <laughs> I just wondered about, like, like once you've introduced the idea of a polymorph, when have you ever encountered anything ever again after that? Would you not think first that might be a polymorph? <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> you would be so paranoid once that encounter had finished that everything could possibly be a fucking polymorph. I, th- I think maybe in the, in the books the polymorphs are a bit... They're less able to perfectly assimilate and um, and pretend to be someone, like I think they're more about the, they, kind of the, the physical appearance. Didn't the polymorph um, take on the appearance of Lister in the Garbage World? Yes. N- no, I think it was suspected. No. No, because no, because the other Lister is saying like he was at the other end of the. The, um, the communications thing and the other list of the older lister came in and turned it off. Oh right, yeah, yeah. But but That's it was it was very it was very like limited in how much <clears throat> the polymorph could like socially pretend you know to be to be lister. I think. Oh, and, I see what you mean. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. The, it can do. By it can do. Like, yeah. It's more of a physical thing. Than, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The social engineering side is harder. I see. Yes, ten <clears throat> points to Kebs. <laughs> a few um, discussion topics on Ace International Debris. How did being held back a year at school make Ace handsome? How did it change the texture of his hair? Oh, mate, there's a chaos well. theory question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can buy his hair being different because he takes more care of his mm-hmm. appearance. He uses more products. Yeah. Then, uh, like having that sort of wiry hair is something that is fixable. And sometimes hair can completely transform if you just let it grow a little bit. It becomes a completely different type of hair that has, you know, like, so he lets his hair grow, whereas Rimmer keeps his hair really short. And as soon as you mm. give it a bit of length, it could, you know, you could have, yeah, yeah, all sorts and of things. he takes better care of it. Yeah. And I think a lot of the stuff about him being more handsome and, and not having the flared nostrils and stuff like that, I think a lot of that is posture and attitude and the way he carries himself. I think so. I think it's more the fact that Rimmer's so tense and stressed that it yeah. kind of shows on his face a lot. Mm. And with Ace, he's a lot more, well, outwardly at least, he's a lot more, he looks a lot more relaxed, a lot more able and capable. And again, like I said, it's all down to sort of appearance and, and impression as well. Like, you know, mm. two people can look the same, but the way they talk to you will give you a different impression of them, even if they look identical. There's so. also the possibility that Ace has um, had some plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery. Uh, yeah, that's Could have been true. some accidents that required him to have some work done or something like that, you know? Yeah. Like, or be, just because he cares, he puts more effort into his outward appearance than Arnold does. Yeah. Also, oh, Rimmer does mention that he was taught how to um, pick his nose with his thumbs, and that might have accounted yeah, for his flared nostrils. Yeah, junior age. Yeah. 
I totally missed that fucking line. So that's why his nostrils are big. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I don't remember that. Where the hell's that line? I missed that. It's just as he's going in, going up to see Ace as as Ace is operating on the cat. It's not in this chapter, I don't think. The, the language that Ace uses is, is sort of at its most ridiculous. Like it, <laughs> <laughs> we um, we we obviously we had more than a glimpse of it in the previous Ace only part, but here is completely out of control. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a very very good summary from Warbo Dog: Chumburger, sausage, pickles, porridge, mashed potato, fruit loaf, and even a sprout. Have your breakfast already. <laughs> <laughs> And there's a a line that Dave picks out. Jake with you, my old fruit salad? I don't know what this means. (laughs) (laughs) And so Clem uh, did the work of looking it up, and apparently Jake is an informal North American slang term for satisfactory. Never heard of it. No. No. Very bizarre Again, there's a lot of that in Red Dwarf, where there's a lot of words where parlance is... Nixon was something that I didn't know for the longest time. I didn't know what that meant. There's loads of them. Parley... Like, sit down and parley. Didn't know what that meant. Parley. Yeah. And there's lots of this stuff where it's thrown in, and it's just like, oh, I don't know what that means. And yeah, we're straight into some open hostility from Arnold towards <laughs> Ace. And it's just brilliant being in... It's the classic thing of what a novel can do ahead of a TV series of giving you those sections that are told from someone's point of view and getting into their heads just gives you more time to really go to town on the way Arnold's thinking. He's lamenting the consequences of death and he talks about, you know, he thinks about rather how talking about the consequences of his death is the one thing that he's got. It's the only thing that gives him, that makes him anything close to being sympathetic. And so to have Ace being so casual towards it, it, like, completely undermines him that just nails Rimmer so perfectly yeah, yeah. there's some really good stuff the, the line is is that it's the closest he gets to affection which is like mm. particularly heartbreaking right because <laughs> yeah. that's basically what he's the only thing he's after wouldn't admit that out loud but. going back to international debris comments uh, the paragraph about Rimmer's death how it affected him and the sympathy it elicited contains more interesting character stuff than the whole of Last Human yeah, Last Human's <laughs> taking a fucking beating today isn't it <laughs> yeah. well it's interesting because this in my memory I remembered backwards as starting really well but get tailing off a bit towards the end and I felt in my memory that this was where it started turning off but so far this chapter has had some of my favourite mm-hmm. character bits from the whole novel I yeah. think if if you're if you're adverse to things being grim, it, it, mm. this is probably where the rot starts. But I don't mind that so much because it's it's pretty well balanced. I think with some really good funny stuff and top Rimmer character work, you can get we'll get away with a lot if you get those two things right. Yeah, Rob really really knows Rimmer. Yeah, that's what I've noticed, and especially that this book in particular is kind of the strongest. Rimmer, yeah, yeah. And it's weird because th- this nails down Rimmer's origins and sort of a more backstory of Rimmer, whereas the Infinity is more about Rimmer, Space Corps and onwards. Yeah. Because of the Me Squared stuff and all that, where Rimmer is as is now, whereas this is a lot about, you know, how Rimmer used to be and how Rimmer has got to this stage. Yeah. The first two books show us what Rimmer is, and this book explores why Rimmer is the way mm. he is. Mm. Taking it right back and sort of going under the bonnet of Rimmer. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Which is an analogy I'm sure Chris Barry would approve of. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there's many fans that would love to go under the bonnet of 
Remember? <laughs> so I have no idea what that means. <laughs> well, interesting segue. There was a lot of discussion in the comments about whether or not Ace in Dimension Jump is homophobic, and we discussed that a little bit in our previous Waffleman podcast. Mm. But there's a bit here that clearly shows that he's not, where he invites Rimmer to bend him over the console desk and spank him <laughs> senseless. <laughs> I don't know what the exact wording is. <laughs> you can bend me over the desk and give me a damn good spanking, okay? <laughs> Please. And yeah, just to get the contrast, Ace briefly mentions spanners to Lister, and Lister is already delighted at the prospect of there being a version of him that did really well for himself. Yeah, yeah. They're getting that in early. Yeah. There's some conflict with Lister's age here, because that's a very... It's a mature attitude to have. Yeah, and and earlier on, when Rimmer recognised him, it had to be... Rob had to write around the fact that he would be a young Spanners, and that had to be shoehorned in there. And just it's starting to not sit particularly well. I think basically after this part, the age of both of them becomes a full-on albatross around the neck of the book. While you know, while it's still kind of part of the story at the moment. Whereas the book at this point takes a break from the burgeoning Ace Rimmer dynamic to have some vivid descriptions of torture and torture devices <laughs> and international debris summarizes the whole of chapter nine as hi rob this is definitely the, what i remember the most from this <laughs> section yeah. of just like are you okay rob <laughs> Mate, is everything fine everything blink twice if you want help it's as unpleasant as red dwarf ever gets i think this is you know it's like it, I, that's the whole point that these things are you know they are but you've got to imagine how it is working from these agonized perspective as well as they've been waiting you know millions of years mm. for a human and yeah. all of a sudden they've got a snifter of one and it, they're not going to waste it so they're going to absolutely you know, milk this for all it's worth. Yeah. And it's just like the one chance they Literally, have to do it. I, mean. I was going to say, if they can, yeah. Jesus. It's basically a massive saw trap. All right, I've got yeah. I've got a note here that just says metal cocktail umbrella, frowny face. <laughs> yeah, that's the one bit that everyone remembers as well. Like, mm-hmm. for some reason. For some remember reason. all the other stuff, but yeah. Approximately, I was going to say 50% of people that read the book. Let's be real. 80% of the people <laughs> that read the book... <laughs> Well, I um, looked it up, and there is an urban myth about metal cocktail umbrellas or things that resemble uh, metal cocktail umbrellas being a medical device that's used uh, at sexual health clinics to inspect uh, the urethra. They, like, put a shove a cocktail umbrella in and then open the umbrella to open up the urethra. It doesn't exist. It's a complete urban myth. Oh, is it not real? So it's it's not a treatment for gonorrhea? It's not real at all. Um, I will put a link in the show notes of a proper medical person who did a study into this myth and found that like the majority of people believe it to be true and it's just not. Now, is that meant to be a deterrent from people passing on STIs? Is that what the how that yeah, kind of started? It sounds like, like something that would probably be spread off. by Catholic schools, you know. Like, but in practice, it, <laughs> it meant that 
it prevent it Preventing, deterred yeah. people from seeking treatment for diseases that they already had. As if like um, the idea of going to a sexual health clinic is already a difficult sell. It, it doesn't mm. need urban myths like that, does it, to make it even worse? Um, yeah. yeah, Jesus Christ! I'd forgotten about that. I, I'd forgotten it to the point where I would never have thought that that would be a thing. But I do remember now that that going around. On a more practical level, Dave says of all the torture equipment, it feels like the metal toothpick to scrape out the inside of the penis tube is the nastiest of all. Your mileage may vary. Oh, that's what that means. (laughs) (laughs) What's worse, a metal toothpick or a metel cocktail umbrella? If you have no... If you had to. I think that is in the emergency questions book, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Warberdog asks, why would Lister put on the condom? I don't uh, think he's going to have much the, choice the con- in the matter. Yeah, they're putting it on him, I'm sure. <laughs> There's a lot of discussion about the Wheel of Death and the corridors and all the rest of yeah, it. Yeah, the spokes. Uh, in the comments. Uh, it's probably better just to read the comments rather than us trying to summarise it all. But basically, Dave says, I always found it a bit difficult to reconcile this with the scale of Red Dwarf. The ship is miles long, so I don't buy that they've completely gutted the whole ship to build this Wheel of Death thing, as it can't be that big. See, I never I never thought that that's what they had done. I thought they just took a bit of it. Yeah, crucially made sure that the only option for entering, like the only um, cargo bay, led into the corridors. And to skip ahead a little bit, it's clear later on that Junkheap, uh, the Agonoid that designed all this, it was always dual purpose. He gathered, yes. he gathered all the Agonoids mm. into the centre and then made them go through the corridors of death. Yeah. So it's possibly the whole thing was a double bluff on his part that it was never intended for the crew to go through the corridors and end up in the hub. Yeah. Yes. It was all just a lure to get the, the whole Agonoid population together for him to fuck them over. Yeah, it's like, like it was the whole grand master plan he's had since the beginning. Well, we'll come back to that because that is a later chapter. I'll be honest with you though, because the, the wheel of death, though the the whole the whole design of it, I'll just mention this. It does put in mind of me like Robot Wars. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Games Master, whichever aesthetic you want to pick. Everyone desperately trying to think of a Craig Charles rhyming couple. Well, you can imagine that this entire thing would have been shot on the in Sudbury Pump House. Do you know what? Yeah, I it would make for a good a good special to be honest. Yeah, it never will. But it would, like it's, it's a very arresting kind of idea. Um, I do love, I love the idea of the agonoids and like, and and the the actual kind of threat that they pose is very kind of is very definite. Mm. So meanwhile, back on Starbug, a plan is hatched that they can somehow use Ace's technology to get home. But ah, where is home? <laughs> well, I read that, and it was like it's a, it's a one of the, the uh, many cliffhangers. Warbedog says finally a positive cliffhanger. <laughs> it's all coming together. But it's a bit of a false one because that doesn't actually go anywhere as far as I remember. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it will come to a conclusion in uh, in the final part. What, using the wildfire drive to get home? Yeah. It, it, yeah, it does kind of come back. It kind of comes back, but not in this way that they're planning to... No, yeah, because they, yeah, they're, they're, they're looking to kind of get back to... It's almost like, yeah, Earth to being... Their, to, yeah, yeah, we to could, we could probably not be that... We probably don't need to be that coy about the end of the book because everyone's probably so fucking sick of waiting for us that they've read to the end anyway. <laughs> but, yeah, the kind of the yeah. red herring of Earth being home. Yeah. yeah, I guess that's what that's there for. Yeah, the, yeah initially they plan to use the wildfire drive to get home, by which they mean Earth three million years ago. Yeah. But in the end, they do use the wildfire drive, but in a different way and with a different end result. 
which yeah. I think it's ironic that they started on Earth three million years ago in this book. That's true. <laughs> um, just the wrong just three the wrong, million years. Yeah, the wrong Earth. Just to briefly address uh, something that crops up in this chapter, Arnold at one point describes Ace as having puffy hair and Warbadog in the comments, uh, that's puffy as in the formerly popular slang term, isn't it? Glad it wasn't in the series. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Um, Same. In fact, I referenced this that's a, shame. a bit earlier on in the in this episode. Um. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that it was a homophobic slur, and I thought, oh, that's a shame. That's a shame that that's in there. However, having Googled it, the spelling P-O-U-F rather than P-O-O-F saves it. Poof-E with a U is a woman's hairstyle popular in the 1700s, characterised by high-rolled puffs, according to thefreedictionary.com. There's a couple of comments as well about the conversations that happen between Rimmer and Lister about their other selves. Clem points out that, hey, I am that Lister, is a line that arguably works better coming from a 15-year-old Lister. Yeah. Yeah. Then it doesn't work, so that yeah, arrogance of youth. Uh, whereas Warbadog points out, it doesn't work quite as well in the novels as it's unlikely that Lister could justify feeling jealous for Spanners when he's already spent 40 years growing young with Kachansky and also unraising, lowering twin <laughs> boys. <laughs> but yeah, he's done that but then lost them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It doesn't compare to having it all happen in the right direction and, and growing old and seeing your children grow up. Then again, he probably has a fair optimism that something's going to happen that he can experience all that again yeah <laughs> so he, he, yeah the right way around yeah international debris points out some good quotes from our rimmer uh, taking the piss out of which, <laughs> yeah. which kind of shows that the rob is very aware of how over the top he's going with that so my old toilet cover my old sick bucket <laughs> i've forgotten about rimmer's own versions of these superb because he's perfectly acerbic about it as well. Like he's like unflinching. He like in again. Somebody mentioned that the, uh, Quinn had a really good thing saying all of Rimmer's lines like this mocking ace are brilliant, and it just shows there they are the same person with the same wit, but Rimmer's nasty about it, whereas Ace uses it charmingly, and that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it is basically it says a lot about Rimmer and how he is. He is quick. He is witty. But it's how he uses it that makes the difference. And mm-hmm. It's like you know, Rimmer is now resentful and uses it to kind of you know to hurt, whereas Ace uses it to help and to yeah. and to lift people. And it is interesting to have that yeah. same character having the same mentality but apply it in different two two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I need to get it's the good. definition of that phrase. I think we're heading towards the end of the chapter now, folks. Don't worry. We flip back to Red Dwarf and the Agonoid, and um, basically, Made in Taiwan is a fucking idiot. He He falls for John Keep's uh, trap of the apocalypse virus, setting that up for later on as well. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah. Chekhov's apocalypse virus, as uh, International (laughs) Debris points out. Czech apocalypse. And what it does is it makes Maiden yet another character in the novels. We're in their head for chunks of it, and then they die. Yeah. Like Saunders and McIntyre in the very opening of uh, the first book. But not Billy... Bob, Bob, Joe, Billy, Billy, Billy Bob, Billy Bob, Billy Bob, Billy Bob, the Halley Bob comment. Yeah, he doesn't die, but yeah, again, he's like a Billy Joe Epstein. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, it, that's Billy Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Billy Bob thought. Uh, Billy Joe Armstrong. <laughs> Billy Jean King. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, thinking about like, because I actually, it's a bit tropey. It's a bit maybe a bit obvious, but I do really like. Uh, is it Junk Heap? Yeah, Junk Heap's um, plan here. It's quite a satisfying rise to power that he initiates here. Yeah. It's kind of fun. And again, it just kind of builds on probably 
the Agonoid's strongest character trait for me, which is this again, this this you know self-destructive or like you know this this cannibalization that they that they do. Um, and presumably, mm. Junkheap's plan was have this conversation with as many of the higher-powered Agonoids as possible, and just wait for one mm. of them to come along and take the bait so maybe he'd had a few failures so it's quite a robust plan as well like you know there'd be lots of opportunities for him to find his mark he's smart enough to have identified maiden taiwan's physical strength but also his uh psychological deficiencies yeah yeah he's he knows that he's the perfect target dumb as rocks and yeah, it's it's kind of like it's all karmic as well because Maiden Taiwan had just killed another Agonoid in order to get his eyes and pick up a few spare parts while he was there. I mean, he's done that to dozens. Someone. He's done it to yeah. dozens. Of us, yeah. So it's just yeah, Junkie is the smartest of the Agonoids, and it just goes to show that you know no one expected him to stand a chance at being the one because he was old and decrepit, but he was the yeah. clever one, and so they kept him alive and they you know they mm. protected him because he was the clever one, but in the end, the intelligence easily out trumps the physical strength and again that's especially if you're a a creature that can steal other people's physical strength that's a, the, the fact that there was literally one clever one just yeah. shows how <laughs> f- fucked up that this this policy of killing each other really is because they must have realized just before they killed the last intelligent agonoid oh <laughs> shit better keep this one a prelude to like the rise of the of the geek that would would happen in the starting in the late 90s like <laughs> nerds will inherit the earth sort of stuff so Junkheap is Bill Gates. Yeah. And now he is tracking our every movement. <laughs> With a virus. <gasps> Zong. <gasps> Certificate <And> of proof. <laughs> vaccination <laughs> ID. We might as well stick with the um, agonoids because uh, we're nearly at the end and the book flips between yeah. mm. uh, the two settings. But yeah, just finish that bit off. We then... Uh, suddenly introduced to pizza crap. Yeah. And he sort of replaces Maiden in that we're in his head at the start of the chapter. Yeah. And so that kind of tells us what's going to happen, right? Because <laughs> we've just had Maiden Taiwan is kind of a red herring and then all of a sudden, oh, meet this other Agonoid. Yeah, it so... suffers a bit. Like, we needed to be introduced to Maiden in order for his death to have an impact, and that works. Yeah. We also need to be introduced to Pizza, and it's just, like, maybe Rob needed one more chapter to make this a bit more seamless. Because, as it turns out, in my mind, Pizza is just the same as um, Made in Taiwan. He's, yeah. He's exactly the same character, it's just he's been given a different name, and, and it's like he wanted to do two things with this one character, and so had to split them out. Mm. Maybe if we'd have been introduced to Pete Zack earlier. Yeah. But we had both of them. Or like, uh, yeah, we they're both drinking in the bar. You know, yeah. and they're both going for the same prey. And, and maybe <clears> so, yeah, some sort of pact between them. Yeah, we? exactly. Yeah, yeah. Identified as two of the strongest ones. I mean, I don't know, actually, because like we've just mentioned, they have a habit of very briefly putting you in the head of someone. And they don't necessarily have to be important characters that are going to stick around forever. True. Thinking about the um, who was the the guy at the bar that had found himself um, uh, with Lister's crew back on oh, the yeah. dwarf. I can't remember his name, but I know what you mean. Yeah, he had a few paragraphs, but we were in his head and we got his yeah. life story. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, John Keeps plan is enacted. He well. basically kills 
every Agonoid, or attempts to kill every single Agonoid, basically does his own practice torture before he gets on to torture the humans. Yeah. And Warbadog making a, a similar point to Danny, the hub of pain is the Robot Wars arena. Activate! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's in, it is interesting how it is literally turned on its head. That, you know, it revealed that it wasn't. I mean, presumably Junkheap isn't the only person to have designed that. So it's, it's suggested that Made in Taiwan was also part of its planning to some degree. I think Junkheap was the boss. He was like the foreman. Right. Like okay. The architect of it. Yeah. And so even though he had other people working on it, he was able to put these extra bits in to make it have that dual purpose, mm-hmm. unbeknownst to everyone else. Because, yeah, rather than it being a lure where the humans come in and make their way to the centre, everyone starts in the centre and then are forced out. Forced outwards, yeah. Because it doesn't yeah. matter where they end up, they're, they're just going to get flushed out into space because yeah. all the spokes end at a cargo bay. So, uh, yeah, off they all fuck. Yeah, never to be seen again. <laughs> and meanwhile, back in Starbug, Ace and Lister are busy sorting out a new hall for Starbugs. They're planning a surprise attack on the Agonoids, and everything's brilliant. <laughs> it's all going to go. Everything's going to be fine. Lister goes on a little spacewalk to free Crichton's arse, only to discover it was the arse of a different robot. <laughs> I like this. I remember being surprised by this originally. Yeah. That, yeah. Hang on, that's not Crichton. Great, great bit of horror, really. So I got quite confused about how this works. So Crichton was basically covered up from being seen in Starbug because they're going to fix the hole from the inside, then go around yeah. and get Crichton in from the outside. So presumably Crichton was supposed to be still there. Yeah, and then they basically they, back, s- they basically sealed Crichton into the new hull. They built a new hull. Yeah, uh, and Crichton was behind it, and so then they went round to cut a hole, a the bigger hole in the original hull, in order to free Crichton. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, but they found that Pete Sack crap had got there first. Dun dun dun! International Debris says the last line of this is one of my strongest memories of the book. It is a good line. Yeah. I am piece of crap. Welcome to hell. I genuinely can't remember what happens after this. Well, Warbadog says, did Pizza Crap fall through space and miraculously hit Starbug, or did he have some sort of propulsion? We'll find out. We will yeah. find out. We'll find out. But that's what's so great about this as a cliffhanger, because you're completely thrown for a loop. Yeah. There's so many questions, like, how did he get in there? Why is he there? Um, what the fuck has happened to Crichton? How long has he been there? Who's eating this chicken? It's like um, the reveal in Last Human with Evil Lister, and mm. it's... Like one of the more effective things with that is the creepiness of how long he's been listening uh, yeah. and, and yeah. around, and and it's the same thing here. It's like, ah, how long was he there? What did he hear? And we get on to some of that, I think, in the next bit. I have one last note from this section, and it's the bit where Ace is fixing his own arm and focusing on the pain in order to distract himself from being soppy. <laughs> and just all kinds of really horrible, vivid descriptions of how fucked up and mangled his armies. Yeah. And I just made a note, Ace and or Rob are weird. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I think that pretty much sums up the chapter. <laughs> so, I think there's a good point to have a small breather, uh, compose our thoughts, uh, arrange them into some small points, and come back after a little bit of music. Right, let's whap our small points out on the table. 
And I will start with something that occurred to me right at the very start of this section. Uh, Crichton's propensity for guilt is a hardware issue. Yeah, yes. I thought this would pay off. Yeah, it said he had long suspected correctly that the circuits controlling his guilt responses had somehow got themselves cross-wired. Yeah, I don't think that's like a constant problem. I think that's a, a like it's gotten worse. Like yeah. th- like something has made that situation much worse than it normally is. Yeah, we've heard a lot about Crichton's emotional state and the you know his list of things that he didn't want to think about <laughs> and like yeah. virtually yeah you know, most chapters so far most sub chapters end with Crichton realizing something and feeling guilty about it. <laughs> That's that's the way information is conveyed in this novel about what's happening, what fate belies the crew, is uh, how Crichton is scared by it. I've got to mention this line though because it says he experienced a pang of guilt that would have been strong enough to turn a human being into a Roman Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was a good line. I'm assuming, I'm assuming Rob had a had a Catholic uh, education. Very possible. Yeah, very... There's a couple of interesting things to discuss regarding the the prose in this part. Uh, Pete Part 3 points out a line in Chapter 4, it wouldn't surprise you or me, but it did surprise them. Is this the first time in any of these novels that both the omniscient author has been characterised and the reader has been addressed? I'm struggling to think of any other examples where the narration has been quite this chatty. That leapt out at me as well when I was reading. It wouldn't surprise you or me. Who is me? Mm. Yeah. yeah. The, the narrator is talking to us directly. The narrator yeah. is now a character. Yeah. And I think, as Pete points out, it's so rare. Like, I can't think of an example. I'm not saying there definitely isn't one, but I can't think no. of an example. No. No. That it feels like a mistake that like maybe should have been changed to something else. It's like it was there as a shorthand. But if you think about it, it... that's not the right voice for this no, novel. Not... Yeah. yeah. And breaking voice, it, like the narrator like breaking the rules is... A valid thing to do, but you, you'd do it for like a big moment, wouldn't you? You'd yeah, do, it, you'd do for, it for a reason. It, it reminds me of <laughs> there's a chapter in the, the the most recent book in the Song of Ice and Fire series, and the way they're they're structured is every chapter is first person you in one character's head, and there is one very very specific bit in one chapter where that changes to be a third person narrator for two sentences and there's a very specific reason for that it's almost like the character itself has been severed from reality has been severed from themselves and and so the rule is broken in that one instance and it's incredibly effective because it's been such a you know a set rule for all the rest of the chapters but in this case yeah. you're right it just kind of feels like it's been chucked in there and another interesting thing is that when we're in ace's head the narrator talks like Ace too. <laughs> yes. Uh, ten points out. Uh, Ace says things like Bob's your mother's brother and calls Red Dwarf the small rouge one. And then the prose starts doing the same thing. The effluent stuck in the ventilator, etc. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. Assimilating. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very strong personality. When we're in a character's head, we sympathise with them and, and get everything from their point of view. So, like, it just implies that Ace's internal monologue is this horrible florid language as well <laughs> it's like he's not putting it on that's how he thinks yeah sounds like a disease in his head so i've got a point here this is kind of more from the very beginning of the book when we're talking about Rimmer being on emergency power and stuff like that that i'm old enough to remember when the books were telling us that the amount of power needed 
for a hologram was like astronomical. Like, it's, it's something like every, every second the amount of power needed to power a hologram could power a city for seven years. It was something ridiculous yeah, like it was that. Something, yeah, yeah, which doesn't really fit much with this kind of survival low on power situation where he still needs to exist, obviously, because he's a character. Yeah, Holly can only sustain one hologram. It's like in order to get two holograms, like in Me Squared, you've got to power down unnecessary systems on Red Dwarf, which is a ridiculous amount of power required. It's almost like we needed. This is why we needed Legion in the TV series because not only is the hard light an upgrade, it almost feels like a good excuse for making Vimmer be more efficient and more portable, mm. um, which is what is required for that series. Um, but the books don't don't have that moment. Or it's like an LED light versus a normal light bulb. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. incredibly energy efficient. Yeah, yeah. It produces a mighty light, you might say. Uh, yeah, I was just about to say again. In <laughs> we've got a Promised Land equivalent because the <laughs> diamond light drive had such a devastating, like took up such a huge amount of power oh, that yeah. it completely wiped out Rimmer's battery, and he had to be on mains. So yeah, like exponentially so as well. It's like mm. it's like it's mm. like what would have powered him for the rest of his life it took like four seconds to, to run out. Maybe yeah. maybe Rob never left the writing partnership and he's just been like in secret. He's been a <laughs> he's silent ghostwriter the entire time. Whole time. <laughs> All a big ruse. Yeah. I wish. Yep. All a big ruse one. <laughs> uh, I believe we have a an or an acronym watch. Oh yeah, we do. <laughs> Initialism watch. Oh, ew, ew, ew. But yeah, it was the uh, synaptic transmission enhancer, and that got shortened down to STE within seconds. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, it was just a... Again, but <laughs> at least it was a technological thing that I've never heard of before. Do you know, there's, there's some STEs where they stick a cocktail umbrella at me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent. Oh, Mention dear. of the synaptic transmission enhancer brings us on to my last small point, which is a roundup of things that are mentioned in both this and the TV series, but slightly differently. Mm. So, a synaptic enhancer, without the T, was used to cure Lister's amnesia in Sirens, but here it brings him round from unconsciousness. Oh, perhaps yeah. a little synaptic enhancer will do the trick. I don't know if it's a real thing or not, a synaptic enhancer. Sounds so far. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it sounds like a good umbrella term. Yeah, a synaptic enhancer would probably be like caffeine or taurine or something. Like that, yeah, that would class as that. Yeah, yeah, something that fires up your synapses. Yeah. We also have mention of buggering to death with the wet end <laughs> <laughs> of, a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. of a dismembered arm. Uh, which is a more a more Rob Grant version of the beat you to death with the wet end <laughs> line. Yeah, it feels like he was maybe edited on that one for the TV yeah. version, and he's just like, yeah. oh yeah. Yeah, finally using the censored <laughs> tape. Yeah. And perhaps the most controversial political moment in any Red Dwarf ever is that the Chinese worry balls seem to have been renamed Tibetan worry balls. Oh, wow. Saying a lot about the autonomy of that region. Yeah, Ooh. <laughs> that's interesting. And that's after the series was made, right? Yeah, yeah. It was Rimmer World. Yeah, this is oh, the okay. last thing that Rob did before Body Snatcher. Yeah. Into the gloop. Do we have any more small points? Uh, Dave mentioned um, it's dying time. The role of Jung Heat will yep. be played by Gordon Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the... which I can completely agree. I think that if Gordon Kennedy was ever to come back to Red Dwarf, he should totally play an agonoid. I think it'd be great. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's uh, on that topic as well. Uh, Warbur Dog says that getting back into the Gunman references made me imagine uh, Junk Keepers, Dennis Lil Simulant, and Maidens as the Justice one. Yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, I can picture Dennis Lil playing uh, Junk Keep. Well, our small points now spent and expired. Uh, let's open up our small passages to the world, and unusually, two of the three come from the very first part. <laughs> like, we did say in the discussion that it's a very strong opening part to the to the segment. It is. So, Danny, yours is the first of these early segments to be segmented. It is. And it, it literally, once I, I literally started reading and about three pages in went, oh, I've just found my passage. This is great. <laughs> I'm, I'm after this. Okay, yeah, so basically, yeah, it's the bit when uh, Crichton is reading the, the big iron at Sunup. Perhaps Crichton would have found less to criticise in the book if he had spent less time reading it, but it was the only remaining book available to him, and so he had to ration the time allotted to it. To date, he spent a little over 47 years plucking through it. His calculations permitted him to read only 0.829178 words a day, and every time he came across an A or an I, he was compelled to adjust downwards for the next word the following day. He was prepared to accept this method of reading was perhaps not the best one for enjoying the flow of the novel, but he doubted it would be much more fulfilling at twice or even three times the rate. <laughs> he sat back in the chair, found his bookmark, and scanned down the page. Yesterday's eight-tenths of a word had been cacked, followed by a small portion of the letter U, which was a bit disappointing, since Crichton guessed the entire word was going to be cactus, <laughs> spoiling some 20% of today's adventure. <laughs> his eyes flitted to the correct point and sighed with a displeasure. Unpredictability was not high on Mr. Rattler's list of talents. Worse still, the subsequent word comprised of only two letters, so Crichton was only able to read 75% of the first vertical line of the letter U. <laughs> he snapped the warm paperback clothes and, as was his wont, spent several minutes trying to derive some philosophical insight from his day's reading. As usual, nothing came. Big Iron was in a fistfight in the desert with a bunch of desperados. Bless that day. The desperado and the portion of Ode. Reading bliss. <laughs> was about to force a Mexican cactus somewhere. Up somewhere, probably. Crown couldn't help guessing, but he'd have to wait until the day after tomorrow to find out where. <laughs> so good. And again, that's another reference from another episode, which is the um, talking about uh, shoving a, a, an agave cactus up at places where custom men did. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just to pick something up, you... Did I say something wrong? Well, I'm not sure. Either that or the book has changed between hardback and paperback. Oh, go on. To date, he spent a little over how many years? 47. 45 in the paperback. Oh, that's weird. Hmm. Two years have been shaved off. Is that the same reason that he changed from Lister from 17 to 15? Or what was it? What was the, the... No, the previous thing was that originally they were stranded on a Backwards World for 12 years. Knocked and out. that changed in the paperback to 10. Yeah. So that makes sense that two years have been knocked off. Oh, wow, they've got even to that level. That's crazy. Well, I'm glad you picked that passage. That's... So now we have to read the entire book together and make the... sure that every other thing marries up. You know what? It did occur to me at some point that I'm going to have to sit there with a copy of the hardback, paperback, and talking books of all of the novels and and the omnibus editions oh, and course. see if there's any differences. Annoyingly, the parallel between what you've just described and Moss from IT Crowd is staggering. <laughs> <laughs> from Danny's. Passage to Capsies is a short journey, <laughs> but often a perilous one. Pressed together. Beset <laughs> with metallic cocktail umbrellas. So, um, changeover is about to happen. The point is, once again, you're late for changeover and it's me who has to suffer. 
I'll try and make up for it by giving you a shout before we throw a loop-de-loop list of smirks. A clear reference to Rimmer's minor asteroidal emission earlier and 100% certain to earn him pride of place in revenge pending. Things have changed, Lister. Rimmer rose from his station. We no longer enjoy the protection of a ship the size of a small nation. We're crammed together on a tiny rust bucket designed to ferry all from ship to surface, not extended exploration of uncharted deep space. And the only vague, remote, hemi-demi-semi chance we have of staying alive for more than two seconds is by observing rigid, rigid discipline. Rigid. Rimmer karate chopped the air to punctuate each enunciation of the word rigid, ostensibly for emphasis, though he found it hard to fight off the mental image of each blow cracking down on Lister's neck. (laughs) And by warning the pilot when an asteroid's about to smack into him, Lister added unnecessarily. Rigid was all Rimmer could think of as an exit line, and he stepped briskly down from the cockpit cabin into the midsection before Lister could get in another zinger. (laughs) That is vintage Rimmer. See, I thought you were going for a, a different bit because there's so much good yeah. stuff. There's here. so much good stuff. I here. thought you were going to go for um, when he was trying to focus on the. <laughs> he was trying to read what's on the oh, screen. Oh, yeah. It just printed gits, <laughs> gits, 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 gits. gits, gits. <laughs> <laughs> Another superb bit of rumouring. Again, it reminds me of the exam. It's like, oh my god, I've forgotten how to read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right, I've got an altogether less wholesome uh, section uh, passage for you. My my passage is filled with pain. Has it been scraped out by any sort of cocktail stick? Let's find out. Just just give you the more painful uh, sadistic elements of my passage. The best bits. The door to the hub of pain slid open behind him and made an half-turn to see Junkie limp inside. Jun had masterminded the Death Wheel's design and been the driving force behind its completion. Now he was just adding the finishing touches, the little bits of finesse that would immeasurably enhance the pleasure of the occasion. He placed a small rubber sheath on the wall, just beside the screw-action nutcrackers. He saw the query in Maiden's glance. Condom smeared inside with vapour rub, he said by way of explanation. Apparently it burns like a demon. Jun placed a series of small boxes on a shelf. Contact lenses made of scouring pads, barbed wire dental floss, nipple-sized pastry cutters, he listed, foreskin clippers, small metal cocktail umbrella. What's that for? Anything you like, really. Though I thought it might come in handy for scraping out the inside of the penis tube. Why is he Yorkshire? I don't know, but it seems to fit. (laughs) (laughs) Maiden nodded approval. Jun carried on. Leg waxing strips, staple remover. I thought that might be useful for clipping off scabs. Keep the wounds all fresh and runny. Rectal thermometer coated in sandpaper. Yes, I think that's the lot. <laughs> and now for the rest of... Keeps the wounds all fresh and runny. <laughs> for the rest of the read-through. Uh, <laughs> last chapter of the book. Really? Anytime any agonoid appears. I want you all to have that in your in your internal voice. I kind of like that. I kind of like that though because it takes the edge off it. Yeah. <laughs> On which note, we reach the end of another chapter, and the next instalment of the book club will be the last instalment of the book club ever, unless they make any more books. Which or we decide to do any of the non-novels. <laughs> but let's not think about that for the moment. Next time, we tackle the very last chapter of the last novel thus far. Part 5, High Midnight. Plus, that's not all. Don't just stop there, you idiot. We're also going to be reading the epilogue 
which is called The Difference 2. I wonder if that will tie in to The Difference 1 in no. any way. Let's find out next time. So yeah, read those bits and get your comments in over on the article for this Dwarfcast at www.ganomy.tv. But before we get to that, our very next Dwarfcast that we record will be a special one in two ways. Firstly, it's a Waffleman special, again, like the last Dwarfcast, not that special really. <laughs> but yeah, it's going to be full of waffles where we basically tackle any topic that you want us to tackle. Red Dwarf or otherwise. But it's going to be extra special in that we're going to be actually in the same room as each other to record it in a couple of weeks' time. News to me. <laughs> yeah, <we're>, <laughs> me and Danny have figured it out. We're going <laughs> into your house. <laughs> so yeah, it will be an old school uh, dwarf cast in that it will have worse technical quality and be harder to edit. Uh, but it will be fun for us to be in the same room. Anyway, if you want to add to our pile of waffles, please, please do. You can leave a comment on GNT or you can tweet us. Twitter handle is Ganymede Titan. Okay. So this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working okay. with. Okay. But until then, please, in order to prevent another lockdown which will stop us from meeting up with each other, uh, stay safe, stay vigilant, stay happy, stay cool. Uh, staple removers will be handy for clipping off scabs, keep the wounds all fresh and runny. And as always. <laughs> Ed bye, everybody. Ed bye. Thank you for listening to GNT Dwarfcast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcast again. Have a safe onward journey. Goodbye. I mean, the, the comparison has to be drawn, you know. They, they, these books were literally released as comparisons to each other, like in opposition to each other almost. Dick Emery is not yet born, so such comparison may not be drawn. <laughs> <laughs> Arnold at one point describes Ace as having puffy hair, and Warbadog in the comments, uh, that's puffy as in the formula popul. That's puffy as in the formula. F- oh, wow. Come on, Warbadog. <laughs> Get your fucking. <laughs> All roads lead to Cargo Bay. Except for the B46. <laughs> Played for God. In the 90s, if you were going to say someone has poofy hair and you want it to be a, a slur, it would be P O O F. Do you know what? Having um, looked it up in a dictionary. A poof, P O U F, was a woman's hairstyle popular in the nineteen in in the seventeen hundreds, characterized by high rolled puffs. <laughs> Sorry, I thought you said popularized by. <laughs> <laughs> which would have been a <laughs> which would have taken us on a journey. The irony being popularized by puffs. <laughs> And then we have to delete that whole conversation. Well, no, because it's mentioned in the comments. I think it's worth addressing. I think it's worth addressing, but we can just put it to bed really quickly. We, we, yeah, we'll just put it to bed really quickly. We'll just sh- just say, so we thought that, but in the pre-show... Okay, where's the comment? Yeah, do that. Two seconds. Yeah. Oh. Articles. <laughs> <laughs> Now he was just adding the finishing touches. How dare you? What was that? That was a Tesco delivery driver slamming his door. Rude.